Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I am your host, Howard Megdahl, with a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter, at Locked On WBB. You can go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. And of course, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice, so that as soon as we have new updated shows, you make sure you get them right away. Uh, shows like today's, which I am ridiculously excited about, because we have Debbie Antonelli here. I I wouldn't even know how to summarize her career, considering she essentially covers calls every single game. She's a fierce advocate for women's basketball and moves heaven and earth to make it happen. So, uh, Debbie, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me. Well, Howard, thank you for asking me. I, I'm excited about spending some time with you this morning. place I'd love to start is just to talk to you a little bit about the meeting you just came back from, uh, Sweet 16 to Vegas. Uh, take me through a little bit about why it is that Las Vegas has not had the opportunity to host college basketball tournaments and why you think that ought to change? Well, first and foremost, the state of Nevada is not open to NCAA championships at this time because of the gaming policies out there. And, you know, that's a very unfortunate thing. I think times are changing, though, and I, I'm not thinking about uh, if Vegas is going to open up to women's basketball. I'm thinking when, and I'm believing that it's going to be happening soon. Now, am I correct that, in essence, the nationwide, worldwide way in which gambling operates now, this is a policy that's very much stuck in the past, especially in light of the fact that there is so much regulation and people are so careful in Las Vegas when it comes to gambling? Gaming is regulated uh, at the highest scrutiny and, and highest security in the state of Nevada versus anywhere else in the world. So um, you're not going to have issues out there that you would think that you would have. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things working here. You know, the NCAA has, in Mark Emmerich's term, because uh, he's the president of the NCAA, so I will use his word, he called it um, hypocrisy, that three or four West Coast conference conferences have been able to host conference postseason basketball tournaments in the state of Nevada, in Las Vegas specifically. And to me, that is hypocritical that you wouldn't allow the NCAA to host championships in there. Vegas is a destination city. It has uh, the family atmosphere as much as it has the gambling, which I think people think gambling first. Mm -hmm. um, and that's unfortunate because that's a, a great city where there's so much to do. There are lots of places to go. There's lots of tourist attractions around the area and there's great golf and there's great shows and they just happen to be in casinos. But I don't know how many states in, in our country don't have some sort of gambling. Everybody has a lottery and everyone seems to have a casino boat off of some river. So um, I think this, this, the city of Vegas is a great place for us and it's, it's a place that wants us. They want women's basketball to come there and uh, I'm, I'm very excited to tell you about why. I mean, maybe it's just me, but having spent uh, so many times and uh, seen so many great events at Mohegan Sun, uh, it's very hard for me to process and understand why this would be difficult. What, what do you think will be the tipping point that makes this happen? Well, let me just tell you this, Howard. You know, for six years I've been talking about the Sweet 16 to Vegas, and initially when I brought it forward, and it was on my podcast with Beth Moe and Shoot Around with Beth and Debbie, which was the first podcast in women's basketball, and we ran for about six years. Um, Beth and I like to say, good thing ours was a run before social media because maybe neither one of us would be in the business anymore <laughs> based on some of the antics and shenanigans we tried to pull off. Unlikely. However, 
the uh, there were several people, and I know who they are, and I remember who they were, that told me, this, that's ridiculous. They laughed. They mocked. They said, that'll never happen. Don't spend your time there. And I kept believing that there was a, a greater wow sizzle factor that our game needed. And instead of complaining or spinning the same format changes or ideas, I wanted to come up with a wow um, you know, as you know, I've got eight years of collegiate marketing experience, and I've sat in that seat of a director of marketing at the University of Kentucky and at Ohio State. So I have been on campus trying to promote and efforting women's basketball because I had an incredible passion for it in that job, in those jobs. So um, I've come up with a plan, and I have been able to um, bring a team together of people that believe in the plan. And so for six years, I've been sharing this plan, and I would love to give you the bullet points of it right now if that's okay with that, you that would be terrific so Howard here's what I want to do I want to rebrand and repackage the sweet 16 and I want to take it to Vegas and the reason why I want to rebrand it and repackage it is because our from an economy economic standpoint women's basketball and the tournament is losing millions now I'm not going to go into great detail about how many millions let's just say the NCAA hosts 90 championships and in terms of a revenue model women's basketball is 90 out of 90. Now people at the NCAA don't like you to use those numbers because they they say the revenues counted differently for the men than it is the women and they have all these different you know accountings mm -hmm. and accountants they can come up with all different ways to spin numbers however we've been losing at a very high rate and we need to we need to do something that's a wow so I want to repackage and take the entire Sweet 16 to Vegas removing four regional sites we don't have four regional sites that are lucrative we don't have four that actually want women's basketball, in my estimation. And I think this would be, from an economy of scale standpoint, would be a no-brainer. If we repackage and rebrand the Sweet 16, at the same time, I want to separate from the corporate partner program that the NCAA has in place. Now, all this sounds pretty radical, and people might be sitting back and not understand any of, of how this works, but the NCAA has a corporate partner program that is terrific. However, it's in place for men's basketball in the Final Four, and most of those sponsors, a few, not the majority, very few activate on the women's side at the Final Four. So if we could separate from the corporate partner program, have our own inventory, and create our own creative inventory, we could repackage the women's tournament, and we could sell it standalone and see how it goes. Because I don't think anybody out there efforting to sell women's basketball. And I would like to see how we would do if we separated, had our own inventory, we created our own inventory, and we took the Sweet 16 to Vegas in a repackaged and rebranded model. Now, here's some of the other benefits of it, Howard. I already mentioned the economy of scale. I mean, that's a no-brainer. We could figure that out. It's one place, one destination, one place for the student-athlete experience. But more importantly, one place for the fans, and a great place for the fans. The 18 to 35-year-old male demographic, We've never captured that in our women's game. We've tried many different things. Why not take our event right to the greatest male sports bastion of March? There is no greater place in sport than Vegas. The first and second weekends of March are the busiest weekends in the, of their whole year. And it's because of basketball. And it's because that demographic is active and alive in that community. So let's just ram it down their throats. You know, let's just take it yeah. right to them and see if maybe they would come to some games or maybe. 
Now, people don't like me to talk about this part of it, but, you know, we do have lines on our game. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, talking about the, the sports betting industry. Um, I live with four men. I don't know how many fantasy sports teams we have under our roof because they all have multiple. <laughs> they all know the spreads, the odds, the way they consume sport is different than the way I consume it. And quite frankly, I think the way the majority of women consume it. Guys get up, they look at the paper, they know the spread, they know the odds, and my guys know all of that too. And so they're paying attention to that. And that demographic is, is very much paying attention to that. Look at all the shows ESPN has. Look how ESPN runs and scrolls on the bottom line, the odds. You know, Brett Musburger is the only one that can say the boys in the desert. You know, I'm never going to say that on the air. However, I do think if, if we could have in March, in Vegas, in one of those gigantic ballrooms where there are a thousand TVs and there are all these 18 to 35 year old guys that are in this room, you know, or even the demographic might be even, uh, I'm sure it's older than 35. Uh, if they're in this room watching these games and there's a corner of the room that has women's basketball on, it will have those games on because there's somebody has put some money on it probably mm -hmm. and is interested and will follow. Now, I'm not promoting gambling. I don't gamble. However, I've never even bought a lottery ticket. So that's true. So I'm, I'm not advocating that we gamble. I'm advocating that this is a sidebar to going to Vegas that will highlight and enhance the chance for our game to grow. Well, and Debbie, let me ask you on that, because what's so interesting to me is this shying away from it on the women's side, not only in terms of, uh, in terms of lines and things of that sort, but right through up to and including the fact that the WNBA did not have a functioning fantasy sports site uh, operating with it as well. And, and like you said, there's been so many advances on the men's side as far as the link between the way people consume it and the fact that there's gaming, the fact that there's fantasy sports that goes along with it. Does it strike you that when there's that gap to be made up in terms of enthusiasm, in terms of audience, that this plays, if not the decisive role, but a critical part in it? I do, and you know, I've never, I've felt this strongly about it, but I've never felt comfortable talking about it because the NCAA, their education is the don't bet on it video, which all NCAA teams watch prior to playing in an NCAA event. However, let's be realistic. I mean, women don't need a don't bet on it video. What they need, what young college women need is safe sex responsible drinking. And I've only felt comfortable, Howard, talking about this because Mark Emmerich finally said it was hypocritical, the practices of the NCAA, of not hosting NCAA championships out there and allowing the Pac-12 men. And the Pac-12 presidents voted yes to Vegas versus the Staples Center. Mm -hmm. Okay, That was one that I went, okay, some, they get it. The second part was Adam Silver started talking about, with the other coalition of professional sports, NHL, NFL, Major League Baseball and the NBA, when they all started talking about how can they monetize fantasy sports, I said, you know what, I'm comfortable talking about it now on the women's side. Because my, my partner out there in Vegas, Jim Livengood, will say, it's a head in the sand tactic. W wake up and look around you. This is the way sport is consumed. I live it with my four men, my husband and my three boys. 
It's what happens. It's what's going on. And, when, and I car, when I carpool the soccer boys, they're all talking about their fantasy teams. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, there are so many ways in which women's sports has had to play catch-up, just by, by virtual chronology. You know, the fact that there was an NCAA tournament on the men's side starting in 1939, and it was, I believe, 43 years later that you had an NCAA tournament uh, on the women's side. And, and so all these ways in which, very naturally, the women's uh, platform needed to play catch-up just in terms of uh, development, in terms of uh, media coverage, a, a range of different ways. Here's a way where it can start on day one in much the same way. And so you would actually be getting ahead of the curve by having the NCAA tournament there, don't you think? Howard, let me ask you this. If the NCAA tournament in Sweet 16 was in Vegas, would you go? Sure, of course. Would you consider bringing your family? Absolutely. Okay, I have not had one sports writer, nor have I had one coach on the women's side tell me it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Not one. I believe it. It's more, how can we help you? What can we do? Yeah. And, well, I, and so I, I think, you know, Vegas is a great city. Clark County, which is the county that Vegas resides in, is the fifth largest school district in the nation. The fifth largest school district. Okay, now consider that from a marketing standpoint. If you set aside what people most fear is the gambling aspect. I I think you just need to set that aside and look at Vegas. There are five arenas within 1.5 miles of the Strip where all the hotels, where all the shows, where all the activities are. I'm a big golfer. There's great golf out there in Vegas. I've played golf out there before. There's a lot of things. The Hoover Dam is 30 minutes. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do that we can celebrate with the fans. I think we talk about the student-athlete experience a lot, and that's very important. And I know the coaches want neutral sites, and I think for competitive equity, that is very important. Mm -hmm. What about the fan? Let's not make the fan have to choose all the time. Let's just tell them, we're going to Vegas, buy your ticket now, here's the ticket packages, and they're going to be reasonable. They're not going to be any more than what you're spending anywhere else that we're going. And bring your family, and let's make this a destination, women's basketball, a festival, uh, you know, Division Two and Division Three. You know how successful that was last year when they came to the Final Four and played? Oh, it was huge. Absolutely. I called the D2 game. It was fantastic. Highly competitive with two well-coached, well-prepared teams. I went to the D2 Elite Eight. Very good basketball. I mean, I can see how we can give our game a wow. Yeah. And, and, this, and the student-athlete experience. Let me take one minute to, to share something with you there. Please. Because this is, this is very important about the Sweet 16. If we rebrand and repackage, at the same time separate from the corporate partner program, and we go to Vegas, I can see us selling a distance learning opportunity for a corporation because student-athletes, some of them be on spring break, some of them won't. It's, this is going to be easier travel for the student-athlete and easier for them to stay up to speed on their academics, in my estimation. We have a place where they can go and not only can they work and study and have a distance learning opportunity while they're there, a place to go, we also can sell a job fair. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. You know I'm on the board of directors for the KL Cancer Fund, my coach KL. Okay? We have just put together with CentOS, who is the uniform people. 
and much more than just uniforms. Mm -hmm. We have we have um, created a new partnership with them. Our greatest asset for the KEL Cancer Fund is our coaches. Our coaches are our greatest asset. Mm -hmm. What we're able to do with CentOS is they are a corporate sponsor of us, and we're going to be able to help align them with coaches and student athletes for their management trainee programs, which they need diversity and they they need females. There's no greater student athletes to go to, or no greater females to go to on our campuses than our student athletes. Absolutely. You, you already know what you get with a student athlete if they are prepared and they have been well coached. And I'm not just talking about the X's and O's. If they've been at a place where we know that you come out of this, you play for K. Yao and you come out of K. Yao's program, there's going to be certain uh, intangibles about you as a person that that you can draw from. Right. With if your you career as an example. <laughs> exactly. You play for Gino. You come out of that program, there are going to be certain qualities about who you are as a person that they are going to absolutely know. And I could go down the list and I could list 100 coaches and say the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's a, um, a new spin, a job fair. An and you don't have to be a senior. No, I, it, it, it makes all the sense in the world. And, and to be frank, I've, I'm kind of amused that there are still people who maybe don't know the history but would actually tell you that something you think should happen isn't going to happen because time and time again uh, you've proven them wrong from Ohio State on. I mean, my, One of my favorite stories uh, that I've heard is the way you went out and got Ohio State women's basketball on the air by lining up the sponsors yourself and making it happen and then, and then doing the broadcast. So I, I, I just I, I think it's really interesting. I think it's an idea whose time has come and I certainly hope it happens, uh, if for purely selfish reasons alone, let alone <laughs> the fact that it would be uh, huge for, for the sport overall. Um, I would love to just uh, take a, the conversation toward another tournament that you had a very significant hand in, which is the Gulf Coast Showcase from last weekend. Uh, and I'm hoping you to take me through some of your observations of teams. I, I think you saw a number of teams there who will be in that Sweet 16, if not beyond. Um, if we could begin with DePaul, because I find them to be such a fascinating team under Doug Bruno. Just uh, initial thoughts on what you saw from them, especially in you know such a big win over Syracuse, the defending runner-up. Well, I have to be honest with you and tell you that I wasn't there for the entire tournament because my ESPN responsibilities took me to other places. However, I, I, I don't really understand how you are in all the places you are in a given <laughs> week. I watch a lot of film, Howard. I, I really work hard at studying our game. And uh, um, I really? can tell you this about DePaul. Their, their early season up and down, I think, is going to be great for them. You know, we see they play well in one game and they shoot it well in another game. They struggle. Um, the Connecticut game, obviously, uh, was a tough one for them. However, this is the thing I know about Doug Bruno's system. They're going to play for 40 minutes. They're going to be up the line. They're going to be in your face, and they're going to shoot the three. And there are going to be nights when the three is not going to fall as often as others. However, his team is disciplined enough on the other end to be able to make plays. I think every year it feels like Doug Bruno is like the last of the good guys that hasn't made it to the Final Four. Mm -hmm. you know, and and when, you, when you look at what he's done and what he's meant for our game, way he teaches and the, the program that he's put in place. Um, some coaches have a system, others don't. He definitely has a system and it's an up-tempo system that he's been playing for a long time and it's something that's fun to watch. 
And I think because he generates so many possessions, um, if he gets the right matchup in the NCAA tournament, he's always a tough knockout. I mean, the last couple of years, he's gone on the road in the first and second round, and yeah. he's won at, at Duke and at Louisville. So I, he's a little bit of an anomaly in terms of being able to, you know, not get a top 16 seed but go on the road and be able to win. Very dangerous having that mentality. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always been my opinion that DePaul players are actually underrated coming out of his system because his system forces you to be making decisions faster. It forces you to have a broad base of skills and to make decisions more quickly. And if you think about the number one thing that WNBA players tell us when they get there is, you know, the game has sped up and they're trying to catch up. But doesn't it strike you that DePaul players are underrated when it comes to thinking about them at the next level? I think that's a good point because the skill set and the ability to play in concepts is what's most important about anybody's system. Yeah. So you have to have the fundamentals, the ability to pass, shoot, and dribble, right? And you also have to be able to understand how to play in different concepts. At the WNBA, the concepts go to another level. Right. You know, there are only seven ways to guard a ball screen. Under, over, hedge, trap, switch, ice, jam. Okay? In women's college game, you don't need all those. <laughs> but in the pros, you need every one of them. And you need to know how to score on a, out of a two-man game. And you need to know how to score on a closeout. His kids know how to do that. Yeah, no question about it. And uh, so the team that they beat, uh, but a team that I'm still very high on uh, for the duration of the year, uh, is Syracuse, uh, who lost to DePaul in the third place game. And I'm curious what your thoughts are of Alexis Peterson at this time, uh, both at the current level where she's putting up just incredible numbers, not only scoring but distribution as well, and the way in which you think her game is going to translate come WNBA time. Well, first of all, I think they're the only team in the poll right now with three losses. So like you, I feel the same way. I feel very strongly about their team. Um, I think Peterson is a, a one of the top point guards in the best point guard league. The ACC has a ton of point guards that can play. Even Jessica Thomas at Miami, who no one talks about, is a very good point guard in the backcourt with Adrian Motley. Mm -hmm. So you start looking at the best point guard league, any coach will tell you the point guard's their most important position. You know, so... This, this is going to be um, a great year for Alexis Peterson because she can score, she can distribute, she can, she can play in that system, she can defend her position. She's got enough quicks to neutralize her little bit of a lack of size, which some WNBA coaches might say she's too small, but we've had small point guards in the league before, and actually some of the small point guards we've had in the league haven't been able to score like she can. Mm -hmm. So I think um, this is a team, because of their system and style, that... Um, and, and you know it's coming, and you have to prepare for it, but they're going to play three-quarter court. Brittany Sykes at the top of that press is long and athletic. It's very hard to simulate. They're going to trap the short corner, and you better know how to play out of it. Brittany Sykes, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. The teams that can beat Syracuse out of their 2-3 zone are the ones that know how to play out of the short corner because if you go out past 10 seconds on your shot clock, they're probably going to switch to man in the middle of their possession. And he has a call, and um, I'm not giving up any secrets. Everybody knows that he has a call. You just better be prepared that you better get some early offense or you better make sure you know how to make the extra pass. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. It's, it's why DePaul was so tough for them, but that is the exception to the rule. Uh, Brittany Sykes might be 
the smartest player in college basketball. Just she she seems to make a heady play every time down the floor. I'm so impressed with her as well. Uh, other teams that we uh, were able to see at the Gulf Coast uh, Showcase as well included uh, the champion uh, Baylor. I think Baylor's really interesting to me because there's so much talent, especially on the interior. But you compare that to some of the difficulties they had against a UConn team that, by all rights, ought to have been uh, overwhelmed by Baylor's size. When you think about what UConn has inside with Gabby Williams, and really the only the only one uh, with the true, legit 4-5 size is Natalie Butler, who plays off the bench. What do you make of Baylor, and how do you reconcile what happened at Gamble with uh, the way they were essentially dominant at, at the at the showcase? Well, I like Baylor. I think they're a Final Four team, and I think uh, based on some of the mistakes they made in the Oregon State game last year in the Elite Eight, I was there uh, for that game. Um, I think they'll fix those as time goes on. Alexis Jones is really good, mm-hmm. and she along with her brother, you know, who's an All-American playing at Texas on the men's side. You know, I can just imagine what the backcourt battles were like with those two going at it. Alexis Jones can score in any facet of the game. And then Christy Wallace is playing really well to start the season. Uh, that gives them tremendous balance around that size. You know, I always see the game through a guard's lens before I look at the post play. Mm-hmm. If you've got good guard play that can score and can share it and can spread the floor and it can extend that defense – it's really tough to bring a double team to the low block, which means Kalani Brown should be averaging uh, 25 points and 12 rebounds. Um, she, you know, in their high-low game, she's very dominant because she gets early offense, great position early, and she's big. It's hard to get around her. You know, the only team that has that kind of size inside is South Carolina. And um, I'm anxious to see uh, how Baylor develops and improves. You know, you're right. They should have gone in there. Everybody thought they were going to go in there and beat Connecticut. But I want to go back to the Florida State game with Connecticut, the first game of the season. Mm-hmm. I know you remember this play. This is maybe a season where I'm starting to say we might be one free throw away from this being a completely different thing. Kia Nurse makes a mistake, fouls Brittany Boyd, who makes a great play for Florida State, throws it up on the rim, and it's she gets called for a Kia Nurse gets called for a foul, and Boyd has to shoot three free throws. Well, she misses the last one. Mm-hmm. You know, if if Florida State is another team that on paper probably should have won that game, okay? No question. Gino no question. says, you know, in the history of their program, we had Diana and you don't. I think he's wrong. I think they have Gino and no one else does. Especially, you have to go a game plan. Especially you when you look at a game like last night, the way they were able to come out and swamp DePaul. I mean, how, how much of that was planning as opposed to uh, just pure personnel? Well, I think a lot of it is game planning with him. I mean, because if you look at his roster, yes, they're very talented, but they're not the talent that they had last year or the year before or the year before. I mean, I don't know how far back we want to go, but this team, you know, I mean, this is a, a, a very solid Connecticut team who plays incredibly well together in a culture of discipline and execution. It's not, you know we're just going to run this play for 10 minutes and we're going to, you know, then we're going to switch to something else in practice. He might stay on one thing until they get it absolutely right. And I'm not just talking about getting it right one time. You know, you've got to be able to game plan. You know, uh, uh, Jeff Walls, if you ask Jeff, he'll say, I don't have a system. What Jeff does is he teaches concepts and then he takes those concepts and he applies them to the opponent. Okay, here's, you know, this is the way we need to defend this team. We've already got that defense in. 
Here's what we're going to work on in practice. Here's the way we can score. Here's where we can isolate. Here's our advantage. You know, it's not just about your system. It's about putting your players in a concept where they can take advantage of the defense. And, and without question, uh, part of his system more and more as the year goes on is going to be putting the ball in Asia Durr's hands and, <laughs> and letting her freelance. Um, I, I, I'm curious, just to take it back to Baylor for a sec, Nina Davis is a player that really intrigues me, uh, and she really is a, an interesting tweener. She's someone I've talked to about. Uh, you know, She's worked on trying to improve her mid-range shot, talked about even getting it out to three-point range. It almost feels like she's sort of squeezed by the Baylor system and the Baylor personnel this year uh, between the guards and the fact that there's so much talent up front. What do you do if you have a Nina Davis and you're coaching there? What would you do to maximize her? Well, first of all, Nina Davis is a two-time All-American because she plays with incredible effort for 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is a junk player. She gets to the line. She scores a couple of baskets in transition. She gets something off her defense. You know, she offensive rebounds. And then she has this horrific, ugly-looking shot that can go in from 15 feet, okay? <laughs> when you look at her game and you look at how has she been a two-time All-American, she scored over 2,000 points. Yeah. She's the second active leading scorer in our game. Okay, she has incredible work ethic and a determination. So when you take... Alexis Jones and Christy Wallace, who have this great skill, who can do everything. You got this great size up front. You know, don't forget Mom Premier. She is a, a big, strong finisher around the rim as well, besides Brown. Then you've got this junkyard dog, if you will, and I mean that in the most positive way. She's you, you gotta keep her off the glass, you gotta keep her in front in transition, you can't foul her on a jump shot, and and Coach Mulkey, I think, does a pretty good job of keeping them all on the same page. Here's our strengths, here's our go-to, here's how we're going to win. And Nina Davis doesn't have to have the ball in her hands. And as a senior who hasn't been to the Final Four, I don't believe she's been, right? Right. She, she'll do anything yeah. to help this team get there. So you would you would make her essentially a jack of all trades, a, a situation of almost like the, the way Swin Cash was deployed uh, in the latter part of her WNBA career. Is that how you see it? That's how I see her on this Baylor team this year, yeah. yes, because yeah. if, if, you know, she didn't score a point in the Connecticut game and it kind of got lost in the shuffle. Well, Connecticut did a great job. If you go back and watch what Connecticut did, they just took away those things from her that I mentioned. If she's open, let her shoot it. Yeah. But don't let her get anything in transition. Don't, don't turn it over in front of her, you know, and don't foul her. Makes sense, and like you said, easier said than done because Nina never stops going. Uh, the, the other team, obviously, out of that tournament is Ohio State, and I guess the thing that I'm most curious about, Ohio State lost a, a real thriller last night to Miami, uh, just a terrific game uh, back and forth start to finish, but Kelsey Mitchell, is there anything that you can do to game plan to stop Kelsey Mitchell, or is that just an impossible <laughs> scenario? Well, I think you have to – you can't press them because you give her too many lanes to, you know, penetrate through. And her first three steps, with or without the ball, are as explosive as anyone in the game. And when she's playing downhill, once she crosses midcourt, I mean, if you give her that kind of separation and she has some time and space – She's going to take advantage of it. She's too skilled. I think you have to somewhat shadow her up the court, 
Um, she likes, as a lefty, she loves to come up the right side of the floor so she can get back to the middle with her left hand. I think if you can keep her on that side of the floor and cut down her window, you know, those are important things to try. It's very difficult. It's kind of like trying to meet Elena Coates from South Carolina on the nail and not let her get strong side early offense post-up position. You know, if you can meet her at the nail and send her back to the weak side, that gives you a chance to maybe they'll make a pass, maybe they'll turn it over. You know, or maybe they'll shoot it before coach touches it. Right. With Kelsey, and this is extremely hard to do, you've got to try to just keep her in front, keep her in front, and you have to contest on the three. She is going to make some shots that you're going to be like, wow, I did the best job I could possibly do. She's that good. However, you know, if you can make her give up the ball, then you got to guard her, to, you almost face guard her not to get it back. Let me ask you this, and this is no easy answer, uh, but I've been asking a lot of people about this. Choosing between the Kelseys, between Kelsey Mitchell and the great Kelsey Plum of University of Washington, which one are you picking now for your team, and which one do you think has the better WNBA career? Hmm. That's a really good question, and that's tough because they both play in a little bit of a different system. You know, Mike Neighbors doesn't have a, um, a gigantic set of plays. Mm -hmm. He, again, is a concept guy. You know, um, I watched the Notre Dame game. Notre Dame is switching the middle pick and roll, and Kelsey was having a hard time getting any offense going. So he moves, slides her over to either wing into the pick and roll game. And then depending how Notre Dame guarded it, sometimes they trapped it. Well, if you trap it and it's Osahor making that screen, then Kelsey can make a play at it. But I think she's so dangerous on the floor. Yet she doesn't, Plum doesn't have the same explosive athleticism. Plum is more of a, an angles, a read, a little bit, take a, you know, she sees the game differently than Kelsey sees it, Mitchell. Mm -hmm. Kelsey Mitchell sees it at, at fast. Kelsey doesn't have a change of pace. You know, right now it's everything is all speed for her. Um, I would probably, and I love them both, I would probably take Kelsey Mitchell because that the speed and the athleticism is something that I can't help Kelsey Plum develop. However, the, the two-man game, the ability to read, the ability to play in all kinds of um, defensive schemes, I think Kelsey Mitchell can pick those up That's a really lot easier at the WNBA level. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see both of them uh, at that level as well. Debbie, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for the time you took. I, I, I don't even know how we'd summarize it, but can you give the listeners uh, a brief sense of where you're going over the next couple of weeks? What, what are the biggest highlights and where people can catch you? Well, um, I've, yes, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of games coming up in the SEC. I'll be at Alabama on Sunday. I've got a game at Kentucky um, next Sunday. And then uh, I'll be in studio at ESPNU and um, cover the men in studio. I've got uh, another South Carolina game. I've got a doubleheader at Auburn, uh, men and women. And then I've got an Ohio State at Connecticut game, and then Christmas hits. And then after that, um, it's a, a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a lot more from that, which sounds busy already. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to running into you uh, at Ohio State, Connecticut, which I'll be out for, uh, for a story for. So uh, I, I look forward to any time you have the time for us to be back on the program. And I thank you so much for being here. Howard, thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it very much, and I appreciate you asking about the Sweet 16 to Vegas. And let me just say this. Rebrand, separate from the corporate partner program. It gives us an economy of scale. 
We'll capture the 18 to 35-year-old male demographic while we're out there, and we'll give the student athletes and the fans an incredible experience of women's basketball at the highest level. Bottom line, anyone who questions Debbie Antonelli is running a fool's errand, but that's just, that's just you know, decades of history that tells me that. Uh, thank you all for listening to Locked On Women's Basketball. A reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. Go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. And please, I would urge you to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listening of choice to make sure you get every updated show as soon as they pop up on screen. Uh, I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, wishing you a wonderful weekend.